Robin, I thought you were calling me yesterday at 12.30. Of course, it took me almost 3 o'clock to realize you didn't call. Call me back. Are you okay? So all I want to know, you'll be going to Philadelphia, I guess. How come you didn't call? It's not like you not to call and say you're not calling. So you keep warm and cozy and have a good time and call me back. Or I'll just keep calling you. I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Bye. Hey, yum's the word, haven't you heard? Yum's the word, it was started by a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually, I blow it out a lot. Two stories, some awkward. Like wetting the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny and absurd. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So welcome all you nerds. And cool people too. This is for everyone, except kids. Yum's the word. Oh, Auntie, she sounds like a stalker. I'll just keep calling you. She means well. Hey, everybody, welcome to Yum's the Word. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. So last week, Alex and I were going to record a Valentine's Day episode, but poor Alex got sick. Are you feeling better, Alex? I'm feeling better. Yay! So today we're going to bring you those stories that we were going to feature. And those stories are all about crushes. Now, I've had a crush or two in my time. Uh, I remember in high school I had a massive crush on this guy, Paul Kalinske. He was tall, he had dark hair, he was really friendly and funny, and he was a soccer player. And I liked him so much. Uh, And I don't think the feeling was mutual. Uh, I know this because in my yearbook, instead of calling me Gelfenbein, he called me Frankenstein. So today's stories were both recorded two years ago at our show where the theme was chocolate and vanilla swirl. They were stories of opposites. It's a really fun night. And first up is Julie Kraut. Julie is a writer for Bravo TV's Odd Mom Out and the author of two YA novels, Slept Away and Hot Mess. This is her story about a crush she developed at French sailing camp. So when I was 15, my parents sent me away for a summer to French sailing camp. And it's exactly what it sounds like, a sleepaway camp in France where you sail all day. At the time, I'd taken a couple years of public school French, which meant that I could only discuss my hobbies in French exclusively in the present tense. And um, like my only hobby at the time was watching Kiss in the Hall reruns, so not that useful. And I didn't care at all about sailing. I only ended up there because of my mom's like pretty aggressive infoseek.com search skills and um, her even more aggressive desire not to live with me as a teenager. <laughs> Um, as a teenager, I was actually what the French might call a lonely bloomer. Um, other 15-year-old girls were learning how to drive and give hand jobs. Um, I was just really into my troll doll collection and terrified of boys. Like, I would try and go as many days in a row as possible without sleeping to a boy, because I was so scared. And um, my dad and my brother didn't count because gross. Um, and even though I was afraid of every other boy on the planet, I also loved them all. Like, I would write these obsessive diary entries about boys, and um, I would pretend that my pillow was a boy's face, and I'd lick it every night before I went to sleep. 
didn't quite understand what making out was. And this boy phobia was like problematic in the US, but like when I went to France, it became even a bigger problem because kids in France are mature. Like kids at the sailing camp drank and they smoked and they brought condoms with them to camp. They were like 14 and 15. And they freak danced. And that was the part that rocked my world like the most. I remember writing back to my friends at home and being like, guys, it's real. Freak dancing isn't just on MTV anymore. Let the rest of America know, okay? Um, so when I was at camp, I developed this huge crush on this French guy named Joachim. And um, I loved him so hard, but I never wanted to speak to him. Um, but I did always try to be like really close to him, and like sometimes being close to him wasn't enough for me. So I pretend that I tripped or been pushed and like fall into him, <laughs> so I could touch him. But I was like too afraid of him to say, to like say words, like apologize to him. So I would just like full on body check him and then walk away. <laughs> Away really dramatically, like a dance. 
my mom didn't fast forward through the dancing class. <laughs> and I knew, I knew that, that was something that we to get on. So, um, so um, I came back home to Maryland, and I couldn't stop thinking about Yoaki because when I get crushes, it's a lot like when I eat Cinnabons. Like, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's intense and emotional, and I think about it for months. And I relive like the glory of it and the shame of it. And the I just gone to the Antiennes and got a pretzel of it, you know. And so then, like a few months later, I went back to France, to Paris, and like looking back, I don't know why I was like such a 15-year-old jet setter, like crossing the Atlantic like multiple times a year. Like right now, my next trip is like in a few weeks to Detroit. So like I was like living the life back then. So I go back to Paris and I take Joachim's phone number with me, and I decide to call him. And this is my first non-homework-related call to a boy. So I'm like losing my mind. And it has to be in French, so I'm like so nervous. And I call him, I have to talk to his mom first, which is like really embarrassing. Like, and, um, and she like doesn't understand me because my French is so bad. Eventually he gets on the phone and I ask him if he wants to hang out. And um, he explains to me that France is actually a pretty big country and he doesn't live anywhere near Paris. <laughs> like holds no weight for me. Like I'm about to hurl myself out of my French hotel window. Like I was destroyed. Um, so then I come back, I come back um, to Maryland and like after like a few weeks of like licking my pillow pretending it's Joaquin, I eventually stopped thinking about him because I figured out what making out really was. And um, I spent the next like 15 years kind of getting the hang of it. And I was like, it was too consumed with that too, um, to think about Joaquin. But then on Facebook.com, after French Arthur, um, Facebook friends me, like just like a little while ago. So I was like, oh my gosh, I remember French sailing. Yeah, I'm gonna go through and see these friends with Joaquin. And he is. So I send Joachim a message that's like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but blah, 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 I have fond memories of you from sailing camp. And then um, I sent it. And I had to write it in English because at this point my French is so bad that ordering an oval pan is like pretty intimidating. <laughs> and he writes back, and as I'm opening it, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's he gonna say? Like, does he remember me? Is that like creep? You just like, you know, body checked him all the time and stole his stuff. Like I realized that I was like, basically I bullied him. <laughs> like thinking that I was flirting. And um and like when I open it, um, it's like, Julie, like, of course I remember you. Um, I don't know how you would say this in English, but um, in French, we call it a Scooby-Doo. I have the one you gave me um, attached to my keychain, as always, and I think about you every time I use my keys. So like, <laughs> I think Scooby-Doo means Kinder Surprise for me. Later, he thinks about me every time he uses his keys. Um, like, who's the creep now? You would never know I studied French for six years. Or, j'ai étudié pour six ans. Now, I was also the late bloomer, but technically I was la late bloomer because I'm a girl. 
It's a feminine way to say it. Uh, but you know what? Julie is right. The French always make everything sound sexier. I remember going on a backpacking trip to Europe with my very best friend, Kristen. And I met this guy named Arnaud, which sounded way sexier than the English version of his name, which is Arnold. You can find Julie on Twitter at Julie Kraut. That's Kraut like sauerkraut. All right, so I recently spoke to my niece Morgan, who is six and a half years old, and I chatted with her about Valentine's Day. Um, do you know any Valentine's Day songs? No, but I made one up. Okay, let's hear it. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love Oh, Morgan, that song is sure to be a classic. So if you like what you've been hearing on the podcast, we would love, love, love to hear from you. Please, please, please give us a quick review on iTunes. It'll not only help boost our ratings, but we would really appreciate it. Does that sound super desperate? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, we love, love, love. Please, please, please. Really, really, really. Well, no, but wait, why review? Why, why review the show? What is? I mean, it would put us up in the rankings on iTunes for other podcasts of the same nature, other storytelling shows, and we would get greater visibility that way. And while you're at it, share the podcast with a friend. Okay, next up is Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde is the author of the best-selling book, How to Be Black. He's also delivered the keynote at South by Southwest. He's been on Real Time with Bill Maher. And he's been on the cover of Fast Company. He is a very impressive and extremely funny guy. This is his story of how a high school crush changed his taste in music, or in this case, changed his tune. That one's for you, Baratunde. He hates puns. I want to talk about white people. Uh, Because we haven't heard enough about them today. I come from a super duper black family. Super duper black. You can quantify my family's black and my great grandfather born at the edge of slavery, taught himself to read, uh, moved to DC, had a couple daughters. One of those daughters, first black employee at the US Supreme Court building, written up in the newspapers. That's a super black achievement. She had a daughter, a very revolutionary daughter, my mother, so adorable, so rebellious, who countered the views of her own mother was out in the streets protesting and was doing the weed and the music and everything and was really part of this pan-Africanist movement. They spelled Africa with a K, that's how black they were. (laughs) (laughs) This is all happening in DC and my mother comes up in DC through the 60s and she has an older sister of mine and she imposes her pan-Africanism on me, gives me this Nigerian name, Baratunde. We are not Nigerian people. And Nigerians remind me of this concept. They're like, where did you get that name? I'm like, I don't know the name bank. Like, where the fuck is the name I got from my mom? I have no say in this. I'm a victim like you. I just live with the 
the consequences, Lord. You too. So it's been it's been a fun journey. And when you, when you have a revolutionary black mother in the in the '80s in DC, you get a different kind of upbringing. You get a different media exposure. I didn't have cartoons. I didn't have C. Dick Run pop-up books. I had uh, my first book. I remember was called "This Is Apartheid." <laughs> A pictorial review. <laughs> I am not lying to you. I had visual images of oppression as an eight-year-old boy. My mom used to quiz me on the nations of Africa. She would point to a map. What's that one? What's that one? What's that one? So I, I had a little tense relationship with my friends. I was protesting cocoa puffs because I thought there was something racist. About me. <laughs> I was on the student hating. And it was fine. We lived in a black neighborhood. My household was black. But then my mother did something really creative and brilliant and terrifying. She unleashed me, this revolutionary bundle of joy, upon white people in the form of private school. And in seventh grade, I switched over to this elite private school called Sidwell Friends. The Obama daughters go there now. And it was a very dramatic cultural shift. And I knew two things when I got to the school about myself. I knew that there would be a revolution and I would survive. And a lot of white people wouldn't make it. I knew it. I knew it. This is true. And I also know I need to stay informed. Like, information is power. So I was a news junkie. I, I would, like, listen to NPR. And I had one white man I trusted, Tom Brokaw. So I watched NBC Nightly News every night. I love the horns and the openings. Like, that's a marching band. had a little flavor. So I could get away with that. And I got to this school and racial politics in high school and hormones mixed just beautifully. And so you know, high school is basically ground zero for the coming race war. Um, and it didn't, it didn't play out in the classroom over curriculum battles or on the athletic fields over scholarship. It played out in the student center at the school over radio station choice. And it was so political, like what radio station we're gonna play in the student center today. And I never understood why there was even a choice. It's like the title of the show, Chocolate, Vanilla. Chocolate wins every time. Like everybody loves chocolate. Vanilla's whack. Sorry, Christian. So, why do we have to pretend that this is an equal opportunity situation? It's not. And so with the radio station, I'm like, everybody likes black music. Few people like white music. Like, this is just high school me, just like slicing the world in binary. I'm like, you got R&B, soul, hip hop, win, 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 and then classic rock. What the fuck is that? That was terrible. And so somebody would fight to put on DC 101, that'd be an argument, that we finally flipped it back to WPGC, because everybody could get down with the hip hop and R&B. Um, and I just, I saw that, that rock radio station, it wasn't just rock music. It was oppressor radio. <laughs> you know, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to fill my mind with those ideas. Um, so everything was fine. I was good hating the world. The world was fine with me. And then something shifted. And I started to develop these feelings of affection for a classmate of mine. Uh, we'll call her Maggie for the sake of this. And Maggie was not a Nubian princess. Uh, Maggie was this white girl, and well, actually she was half Lebanese, half white, but in American rules of race, she was white, um, because we simplify in America. And it was awkward. We had math class together and newspaper together, and, and I had seen, she told me about this music group, Nirvana. She was like, you gotta check out Nirvana. And old me would have been like, I, no, I don't have to listen to the oppressor scream at me. <laughs> 
But hormonal attracted to you, me, was like, oh, if I buy the Nevermind album, you will have sex with me. <laughs> because that's how high school dudes think. Because we're idiots. And, and I turned on the NBC Nightly News that night, and Kurt Cobain was all up in my newscast. Because he had killed himself. And he crossed over into the world that I cared about, which is shit happening in the world. So I bought this album. And then on a cassette tape, it's 1993, 94 ish, I don't remember the exact year. I could have looked it up, but I didn't. I'm lazy. <laughs> you know how many people can be. <laughs> you are not supposed to laugh. <laughs> you are not supposed to laugh! <laughs> that just made it worse, my sister. <laughs> We're gonna talk after the show. So I bought this cassette, and, and I, I hated to admit it, but I loved it. I'm like, this screaming, angsty shit is exactly how I feel. And I, I turned on the Pearl Jam and all the other angry white dudes at the time screaming random shit. Uh, I'm like, this is me. I feel like screaming random shit all the time. It's beautiful. It didn't go over so beautifully when my mother found the cassette. And it's not that she had such simplistic ideas as that, that she was a mature grown person. But she did have a problem with a song whose title was Rape Me. And she had a concern about her little boy listening to this and wondering what kind of ideas were going on. There was no explaining that. I was like, it's art. I don't know. I'm going to go study things now. Um, so I listened to this music and I started opening my horizon. I fucking joined the wrestling team uh, because that's what happens when you listen to too much Nirvana. You join the wrestling team. If you're angry, you gotta take it out in a legal fashion. Um, and, and things started to open up. Margaret never, uh, Maggie never had sex with me. Um, she never kissed me. We never had any kind of romantic relationship, but there was a bit of an opening uh, in my eyes And I, I don't I don't hate you um, And I don't want you to die uh, I actually I, I ended up marrying a white woman. Uh, we got divorced of course, but I tried, <laughs> I tried you know? um, And, and my, my crackhead mayor in DC, Marion Barry, he's not the, the, the symbol of that anymore. We have a white guy doing that now, like Rob Ford. And, and he's Canadian, so like, I feel like there's justice. You know, there's a student civil rights hero. Uh, and I live in a white neighborhood. I live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Like, there's kale being sold. <laughs> I think that Nirvana opened me and opened America. We got Obama because of Nirvana um, in, in my life. And so, the chocolate vanilla thing, chocolate still tastes better, but I am, I am willing to swirl it up a little bit. Uh, and I give some credit to a great musical group uh, and a girl who I had a crush on, uh, who didn't stalk me back, but uh, changed my life in a pretty significant way. Thank you very much. You know, Baratunde's story reminds me of when I was driving the Wienermobile. We used to play 21 versions of the Wiener and Baloney jingle out the PA system. Uh, you know, oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer Wiener, and the, um, my Baloney has a first name. This episode is not sponsored by Oscar Mayer. But anyway, my partner who I drove with, Jason, was always the renegade, and he played, instead of the Wiener and Baloney jingles, he would play the Jerky Boys and Nirvana, uh, exactly the kind of music Oscar Mayer wants to promote, songs about suicide. Uh, and you know what? All I wanted to listen to were show tunes. You can follow Baratunde on Twitter at Baratunde. That's B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E. 
So we've been taking a little hiatus from the live show, but the next one is going to be probably March 30th. You can find out the latest by joining our guest list at yumsthewordshow.com and by following us on social media at yumsthewordshow. And we really want to hear your stories. So tweet us your story about your crushes at yumsthewordshow. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, who wrote some of the music. And the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Vince Fairchild, Michael Cedar, Danny Ortiz, Megan Deneen, and of course, Morgan. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening. And until next time. Call me back. I'll just keep calling you. Yum's the word.